Guys, Matt stole my joke. The joke that I was going to say, I was just going to get up here and say, I'm back. Um, anyway, and I thought you guys were going to laugh at that more than you did. <sighs> Can't win them all. It's good to be back. Um, I'm glad that last week was not my last week because I'm glad that I get to preach to you all one more time. Um, and for those of you who don't know me, I am just barely still the campus minister here for the Reformed University Fellowship, which is a campus ministry that is partnered with Resurrection to reach students on campus and helping Resurrection uh, fulfill its mission to minister both to the university and the city. And uh, this week, I'm going to be continuing in the series that we're preaching in the Gospel of Mark. So we're in the season of Eastertide, as you know, or maybe you don't, you know now. It is this great high point in the Christian year when in the Northern Hemisphere, at least, we celebrate uh, the eruption of life from the ground as a sign of the eruption of life from the tomb, from Jesus' tomb, when we uh, give ourselves to the joyful contemplation of God in Christ who has conquered death for us. This, is, this season is at the very center of what it means to be a Christian, and that's why we give so much time to it. And that's why we actually say that every single week, whenever the church gathers together, is a resurrection day. Because Christianity is about the resurrection. It's God's answer to the problem of death, which is the problem that haunts all people in all places. Death is this thief, and you know this, is this thief that has entered into the world, and if it's left unaddressed, it, it robs our lives of all of its meaning. But in Christ, this problem, this, this haunting feeling has been undone and because of that there's real joy to be had in this life and we are all because of this fact caught up in God's mission to make all things new and we're going to talk a little bit about that today now one of the ways that we are trying to inhabit this season of uh, resurrection is by going back through Mark we've been in Mark for a while we're trying to go we're going back through it and seeing where Jesus was giving us um, hints uh, or, or giving us little signs about what he was going to do because Jesus was always about coming and dying and coming back from the dead. Uh, but as you know, if you've read the Gospels, the disciples had no idea that was going to happen, even though he told them specifically several times. Um, and, and so it's good for us to go back through the Gospels and see where Jesus is showing us what he is about to do or telling us specifically. And that's one of the things that's happening today. We're going to listen to Mark show us and tell us what God's resurrection power has to do with us or looks like and has to do with us now. And one other thing I want to say about this text is in this text, this is one of my favorite, um, one of my favorite spots to read about Jesus because one of the things that I have been learning over the last five years that I've been here is that um, Jesus, and you'll notice if you spent uh, much time reading the Gospels, he's like hard to pin down a lot of times. And what we see here is the like wild and undomesticated Jesus. Not the Jesus of, I don't know, the meek and mild Jesus, the one that everybody thinks they know. This is the Jesus that confuses people and maybe offends people, who will not be categorized by, by you or by me or any religious expert or even his family. This is one of those texts when, when I think we would all do well to remember that this is God. This is God living and breathing and speaking and doing. This is the God who hung the stars in the sky, who set the boundaries of the sea, and who fashioned us from dirt, and who is coming to confront and defeat death. Confront as the baptism rite, 
oftentimes says he's coming to confront all the spiritual forces of wickedness that rebel against him and all the evil powers of the world that corrupt and destroy the creatures of God. And in this text, he's he's, he's speaking about things that have to do with the very heart of what God has come to do. So I want you to to give your attention uh, to the reading of God's word. And I want you to hear him speaking through it to you. Our text tonight is Mark chapter 3, verses 20 through 35. Then he went home, that's Jesus. He went home and, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he's out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons, he casts out the demons. And and he called them to him, and he said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand. But it's coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods until, unless he first binds the strong man. Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all, his sins will be, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit ha- never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. This is the gospel of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for um, your son and his life and death and resurrection for us. And uh, God, thank you for this word. And I pray that as we contemplate it together tonight, uh, that we would be taught by it, that we would be formed by it into better lovers of you and of our neighbor, um, that, we would, that we would hear your voice speaking to us through the text and through my words. And I pray then for my words that the Words that come out of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be acceptable in your sight. And I pray for all these things in your son's name. Amen. So most of you know, if you know me, that I had a lot of bad jobs in seminary. First of all, they didn't pay very well. And then second of all, I had to do a lot of terrible things. Dirty things. I had to, you know, clean out a spider-infested attic. Like those kinds of things. It was very gross. But one of my jobs was a really good job. And it was um, being the groundskeeper or the assistant groundskeeper, and maybe the assistant to the groundskeeper. I was the second in command of a two-person grounds crew. And uh, it was the best job I ever had, or the best boss I ever had, not the best job I ever had. Best job I ever had was RUF, Ben. Uh, best boss I ever had, because it was like this therapeutic thing I could do. I could start and finish a task, you know, I could, most of what I did when the weather was nice is I mowed the, lo- mowed the lawn all over the seminary, so I was spending like 20 hours a week on a really, on a $20,000 lawnmower, listening to podcasts. I would just go back and forth, back and forth, and I could see what was happening, and it was amazing. 
And I still like have longings to go do that uh, now and then. I was driving down Monroe Street, maybe yesterday, and uh, there's a church down there, and there was some kid out there on a, on a mower similar to the one we had, just mowing the grass in front of the church, and I got caught just kind of staring at him and longing while the light turned green, you know. I really loved it. But one of the things I learned both in class and in the fields that I was taking care of is that there are times when things get so overgrown, when the weeds, and by weeds I mean anything, any plant that is not where it's supposed to be, could even be a tree, when the, lead, when the weeds are so overgrown, what it is required to clean or to make it right, to make it as it should be, to, to make the right kind of space will involve things like sharpened blades or these like monster clippers or saws or even a chainsaw. Sometimes that's what it takes to get the weeds out from where they are and where they, where they should not be. And a whole lot of physical exertion to get an area cleaned up. And it's a process that one of my seminary professors who used to be a logger before he was a New Testament scholar, he would call it creative destruction. Because you're actually refashioning the space into what it should be, but you have to do a lot of destructive work to get it there. And in Missouri, there's this plant that is invasive. I haven't noticed it here. I haven't really been paying attention, but it's the, it's, I think it's the European honeysuckle. And it grows everywhere everywhere, and it kills everything around it. It sucks up all the nutrients, it, it keeps the light from hitting the ground, and it, it gets in the bark on it, like you have to use a chainsaw even though it's a bush. It's just this very resilient plant, and it's everywhere. And I, I remember having to clear this out one time, and it had grown up against a chain link fence, and it would not be stopped. And so it was growing into the fence, and the, the branches were like growing around the links in the chain, so that like, even I cut it off on either side and it was still stuck to the chain. That's how deeply tangled this invasive plant was on this fence and it was not supposed to be there. That kind of thing is what's going on in this text and what Jesus is addressing here. He is trying, he, what he is doing is this process of creative destruction where he's taken out like his best tools to cut through this invasion this invasive species that's hanging on God's people so that we could see things as they should be. And he does it in, there's two ways he does this, and it's two confrontations that if, you were, if you're paying attention as I read, you saw. There's a confrontation with his family and there's a confrontation with the religious establishment. So first, he, he's confronted by the religious establishment. That's the one we're gonna look at first. And that's in verses 22 to 30. We're not gonna read it all. But you see there's a, there's a group of scribes that, that approach him. They've actually been sent from Jerusalem. It's like this delegation of bureaucrats that's been sent up from the big city to deal with this crazy guy who's running around and they're hearing stories about him doing exorcisms. Crazy guy running around north of the city doing strange things. You know, they're dispatched to like, go deal with that guy. Go deal with that guy. And they cram into this house where Jesus is teaching and Jesus hears them saying to themselves, probably this kind of like nervous thing like, as they talk and you know, look around desperate for, desperate for affirmation, like this guy's, this guy's possessed. He's possessed. And Jesus basically says two things to him. He says, listen. <laughs> uh, first of all, that literally makes no sense. Because if Satan, like why would Satan be trying to, trying to drive out his own people, right? They're saying because Jesus has performed all these exorcisms, he has to be possessed by Satan himself. And he's like, that would be very stupid of Satan to do. And so it's very stupid of you to say, to suggest that that is what he's doing through me. But even if he was, 
Jesus says. Even if that's what Satan was doing, that means that he's divided against himself, and that means that his house is crumbling, which means that Satan is falling apart, and you should be glad. So what's your deal? So you're wrong. But even if you were, even if you were right, that would be a sign of something good, but you're not right. And in verse 27, he says, but no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods until he first binds the strong man. Then indeed, he may plunder his house. Now the strong man is kind of this, it's this idea that has kind of two meanings. One, very, one obvious meaning and one meaning that actually develops as you continue to read Mark. The first one is like the strong man, that's Satan, not complicated, Satan. Jesus is here to bind Satan and to free the captives that Satan has taken through sin. All of those that are due the penalty of death. Including you, scribes. And then he says in verse 29, basically, if you get in the way of that work for whatever reason, and especially scribes, Jerusalem, religious establishment people, especially if you get in the way because you like your power, you're in the way of the Spirit. And that cannot be forgiven because you're keeping other people from salvation. So get out of the way. And this should be a word of caution to us too. This is something like what Jesus means when he says, listen, if you cause one of these little ones to stumble, it would be better for you to have a millstone tied around your neck and thrown into the water than to face what is due to you. And that is because Jesus has a fierce love for his people. You see, Jesus is here to enact in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, the renunciation of the spiritual forces of wickedness that rebel against God. This is why Mark keeps talking about all these demons he's exercising. In fact, I think I've preached on all the demon texts <laughs> uh, in this series, which is great. It's a nice, like, tying together quite nicely. And that's the reason why these cronies come up from Jerusalem and got sent up there for the first place, because Jesus is going to war not against flesh and blood, but against that which would destroy his creatures. Jesus is coming to bind the strong man and to plunder his house. He is here to set free those who have been captive to sin, which is all of us, by binding up Satan and freeing his captives. Captives. The old theologians would call this kind of movement, that they would summarize it sometimes by the phrase Christus Victor. Christ the champion. Now, what becomes clear in this text, which is one of the most tragic parts of the text, and it becomes most clear in the last week of Jesus' life and all the way to the cross, it, we see this in verses 28 to 30, that sin, which is this love of power and control and pride, all these things all mixed together, has become so entangled even with the religious leaders of God's people, that it's hard to tell them apart. It's hard to tell who's the good guy and who's the bad guy. It's like those vines I was talking about, they're growing into the fence and they're stuck on it. And so Jesus has to do this like surgical work to get them untangled. And what becomes clear is that these same people, this religious establishment of God's people in Jerusalem, they are going to try to get in the way of this work of God in Christ that he's doing by his spirit. It's gonna go all the way to the cross. And so this binding of the strong man in a tragic turn 
also takes on another meaning, and that, that we see that when Jesus goes in and he cleanses the temple, he stops the activities of the temple. And in his death and resurrection, he does away with the whole sacrificial system that propped up this class of people. And so what I want you to see is this. To be a Christian, which is to say to be someone who believes in their heart and confesses with their mouth that Jesus is the Son of God and the Lord of their life, is to be someone who is involved in this same process of creative destruction. When God takes up his residence in you by his spirit, he will go to work on you. And if you've been a Christian for very very long, you know that this is what happens. He will go to work on you. He's gonna open the windows of the stuffy rooms of your heart. He's going to unlock the locked doors of your heart that you have sealed off for years and will not let anyone in. He's going to cut back the weeds. He's going to tear out the rotten wood. And this is an intense and dynamic process. It's this process that we kind of sterilize when we use this like stuffy theological word called sanctification. But that's what it is. Jesus has come into your life to make you into more of who you are supposed to be. Even though the sin that is in you is still present and it is all twisted and tangled up inside of you, Jesus has come to untangle it. So what are the overgrown weeds, the locked and sealed rooms, and the rotten wood of your life? I want you to ask yourself this question today and this week, and I want you to see if you are resisting that work. And I want you to compel you to not do that. Let Jesus do what he is going to do to you, even if it hurts. But the second confrontation is, I think, the more interesting one. Like, we're used to Jesus, if you have read the Gospels much, you're used to Jesus, like, you know, punching the scribes in the face, right? Like he's always trying to do this. But we're not used to him talking to his family like this. Not used to, talk, used to hearing him talk to his mother like this, even on Mother's Day. But his family thinks Jesus has lost his mind. Which, you know, that, that makes sense, that tracks. It's one of those um, great parts of the Bible, in my opinion, that like commends itself to us as a true account because even Jesus' family thought he was nuts. Like, they did not think he was the Messiah. They did not think he was God in the flesh. He was Jesus. He was, this is my brother, right? This is my son. And so if you're trying to make Jesus into some kind of mythic hero, you're not gonna tell people that even his family didn't believe him, right? But anyway, verses 21 and, uh, 20 and 21 and then 31 to 35, you get this encounter where, where Jesus' family is like, he's gone crazy, he's gonna get himself in trouble Let's just like get him back and like hide him for a minute. He can get his wits about him, okay? Well, what's going on? The first thing is this. Mark is trying to show, he's trying to tie these things together. This is one of the things that Mark does in his gospel that if you're careful to pay attention, it's really beautiful. He always tells these stories in in kind of clumps. And one of the things he does is that (laughs) scholars so eloquently call it a sandwich. And um, the sandwich in this text is family, scribes, family. Scribes are in the middle, Family's on, family is the bun, right? What this means is that not even his family is immune to the work that Jesus is here to do, to this need for creative destruction. And what you'll know, if, if you're familiar with the story, is that Jesus' family eventually does come around to, to, to recognizing uh, him as who he is, right? Uh, you know, at the end of Jesus' life, he's on the cross, and he says, look, this is your mother, right? He, like, 
is in a good relationship with his mother, and James' brother would become a disciple, and he would die for it. So things would eventually change. But what Jesus is saying is that the extent of his work to disentangle truth from falsehood, good from evil, right from wrong, beauty from horror, includes even our most basic relationships. In other words, what Jesus is saying is the most fundamental thing about you when you become a Christian is not the social class you grew up in, it's not your last name, it's not the school you went to, it's not who your parents are, it's your relationship to Jesus. This, is, this becomes the most fundamental thing about you. And because that is true, all Christians, in, in a very real sense, become a family. So why we took vows to this little, beautiful little girl who was just baptized, is why we said she'd been baptized into the household of God. This is why we call one another brother and sister, father and mother. So much so that, in the, that the Romans in the early church would accuse Christians of incest because of the way they talk to each other. And if that sounds weird, here's, here's what I mean. It, it, it's, to become a Christian is to be one who is brought into spiritual union, which is weird and mystical, but a, but a fact, it's true, to be brought into spiritual union with, God, with the God of the universe. It's to be made one with him. And God tries to tell us what this means in all different kinds of places, in the New Testament especially. He says, the church and Christ are like a bride and her husband. He talks about marriage within, or, uh, sex within marriage is an illustration of the way that God relates to his church. He says it's an analogy for the, rea- the spiritual reality that is true about you if you become a Christian. And so what that means is that everybody in this room who is a Christian... And everybody in this room, everybody outside of this room who is a Christian is actually bound together, whether you feel it or not. And the reason it's the most fundamental thing about you is because the thing that you are bound to is the most fundamental thing about the universe, which is God. It's the most real thing there is. God is the most real thing there is, and that is the thing to which you have been bound, and you are all bound to it. The church is not just like a group of like-minded people, even though it feels that way. It is a bond that has been constructed on the deepest level of reality. And some of you in this room, I know that you know this because you've become Christians at great cost to your family. For some of you, tell me, my, fam- my, my father has said to me that he doesn't recognize me. He wants to know what has happened to his child. Jesus is saying that this, is, this will happen, and it is, it's, it's still a sad thing, but it will happen. I have a friend who is a, who's a pastor who got a call one day um, from his mom saying that a family friend was dying, and he's a, he's a priest, and this friend who had never been a Christian and never showed any interest in wanting to be a Christian had confessed her sins and repented and, and, and confessed faith in Christ on her deathbed. And she'd expressed that she'd like to be baptized. And so she, through her friend, uh, called my friend and asked him to come baptize her. And the thing about the situation is that nobody in the family was a Christian and their mother, who was the one who was dying, had never once expressed that she was interested in it, and had not told them yet that she had professed faith. So they didn't really know what was going on. 
And the first they heard of it was when they heard that my friend Joe was coming over to baptize her. And so when Joe walked in, the family was there. They had been there, and they had loved their mother deeply and truly. They were there, taking care of her, speaking in soft tones. They're feeding her, cleaning her, most likely comforting their dying mother. And in walks Joe, who had no real relationship with this woman to speak of, and he is about to baptize her. Now, this woman was so sick that she could barely speak. She hadn't spoken all day. And as Joe began the baptism, he came to this um, thing. He's, he's an, a, an Anglican priest, and he came to this section in the way that they baptize people where they, there's a series of renunci- questions that they call the renunciations. And he didn't expect her to respond in any way, verbally. He was like, you can lift a finger, you can blink, you can do whatever you have to do. But the questions are really intense, and they go like this. This isn't all of them. But the questions are, do you renounce Satan and all the spiritual forces of wickedness that rebel against God? Do you renounce the evil powers of the world which corrupt and destroy the creatures of God? Do you renounce all the sinful desires that draw you from the love of God? And she hadn't spoken since he had been in her presence. And when he asked these questions, her mouth quivered. She gathered her breath, and with a voice that was clear, as clear and powerful and convicted as it had ever been, she said, I do front of everybody. And when she said it, and when the waters of baptism poured over her head, my friend told me that he felt embarrassed slightly. Not because there's anything to be embarrassed about being baptized, but because there was in that moment a knowledge, an intimacy, a commonality, a, con- a-, a connection, a union, really, between this woman who was dying and my friend who was baptizing her, there was a knowing that not even her children who had loved her profoundly had with her. And that connection is not just something that you feel. That's, that is a connection that is real. And it is most, it's real because it has to do with the most real thing, which is God, who is speaking in this text the second, his second person. This is Jesus speaking to us. God is the most real thing. And so I want to say two things. These are the last two things I'm going to say before I leave. Two things. The church, the first thing is this. The church is designed to love one another. That's what we're supposed to do. We don't always do it very well. We don't always want to do it. But we've been called to do that. We've been called to love one another. We've been told that the world will look at the way that we love each other and then they will make some decisions about what they think about Jesus. One theologian said that the church is the hermeneutic of the gospel, which is to say the church is the way the world interprets the meaning of Christianity, how it lives its life together. It's a test for how legitimate Jesus is for a lot of people. And so what I want to say to Resurrection Prez is never stop growing in love even when it's annoying, and it's so annoying. I know it is. I make it annoying. You make it annoying. It's annoying to love one another, but we have to do it. Because when we are loving one another, we are closer to what we are supposed to be than when we're not. This is your vocation. And the second thing is, we've been recipients of that love. I want to commend you on this. As a, as, an, as, a, as a word of encouragement, we've been recipients of that love in a lot of ways. 
your finances, your time, the way that you've supported our ministry with prayer, the way that some of you uh, either in this room or listening online met with weird, awkward college students when I asked you to. You invited students into your home. You've invited us into your homes. We didn't have a car for most of the fall, which some of you will know about. And one of you who's in this room who I won't embarrass gave us their car and we had it for like multiple months. We like got it, our, like we got it dirty because our kids were in it. Like that's how long we had it, right? Like the Cheerios and the seats were from our kids. And I felt bad about it and I was trying to be like, ah, I know, we're trying to get it worked out. Like we'll get it back to you as soon as you can. And, and you said, the car is yours, don't over communicate. <laughs> We've received that love. And I want you to know that as we go, we are grateful. And know that as we go, we are connected in a very real way to you because we're connected by the most real thing that there is. Because the family of God is a family that is built on God himself. And so I wanna thank you for that love and I wanna call you to continue in that love. Even when we go, even as other people in this room will go, continue to love one another so that the world would know what it means to be a Christian. So the Lord bless you and keep you and pray for us. We love you. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this word to us um, and for your son who is undomesticated, wild, who will challenge us even when we've been Christians for years and years and years. God, I pray that um, you would continue to challenge us. You continue to grow us into better uh, little Christs, that you would help us to speak words of truth uh, into falsehood, that we would bring beauty into the world where there is horror and sadness. Um, and God, I pray that you would help us to love one another and love you in greater measure all the days of our life. And I pray for all of these things in your son's name. Amen. Amen.